0: Welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend
1: Hunter. Joined as always by the hooch to my Turner, Brandon. Uh, you know what? Dogs are man's best friend. It's a <laughs> funny movie with Tom Hanks. I'm good with that one as well. That works. <laughs> How you doing? All right.
0: Good, I'm good. I I just like to take on that everyman role like Tom Hanks, and, you know, there
1: you go. can play any role, do anything. Brandon, man, how you been? Uh you you staying cool in the basement? I am staying cool in the basement. I've been very well. Yeah, just uh just uh getting back to the grind of Monday morning as they say, you know. Your voice sounds particularly uh low and uh radio DJ today. You know, it's it's. I, I bet it's because I'm using a different headset mic, and I'm using a different board and everything. I'm using a completely new setup today. So,
0: no kidding, you yeah, upgraded,
1: yeah. huh? Uh, kind of. I, I loaned some equipment out to other shows for other things and stuff. So, I'm just dealing with what I got. <laughs> oh, so maybe not upgraded. Maybe. It's, not, it's it's old stuff, but it's it's it works. <laughs> good. Well, you sound good. You sound
0: good. Uh, well, man. Uh, the the dog days, the dog days are here. Late july early august in minnesota and we got just we're in the middle of this drought and we got a stretch of 90 degree days as far as the eye can see what do you what uh what do you make of that it's
1: it's it's much of the same so far this summer it just feels like it's just going to be awfully dry it's it's fun it's it's nice for me in the sense that i haven't really had to mow my lawn in a month and a half uh but other than that it's horrible for everything else it's Wow, no, i'm
0: getting crazy. really tired of it i i was up north and the creek that runs through our property and feeds our lake is you know just mud there's no, really no water flowing through it to speak of the lake is down a foot uh yeah man it's i don't like it i don't like these extremes i i would rather have normal summers and and now i'm a month away from um an uh boundary waters trip in August, and right now, not only is there a total fire ban in the Boundary Waters, and for good reason, but uh, many of the entry points have been closed because of wildfires up there. So, just makes it really tricky, and I just don't know that within the next month, we're, even if it rains a lot, I don't know that it's gonna rain enough to, you know, mitigate the drought. This is the problem.
1: Yeah, how does that how does that make for camping up there when you can't have fires or anything like that? You just got to cook with the pro, with a with the butane stove and everything. Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, I use a white gas stove um but even then it, it gets it's a little nerve-wracking. You know, they Yeah, that's exactly how you cook. But you know, there's something about the ambiance of the fire and the and by late August, you know, most likely it'll be cool at night, so it'd be nice to have a fire. I don't know, fingers crossed. I'd love to have a super wet August and uh get us get us back into it, I I've I've heard good reports from like South Dakota that the dry weather actually is really good for like pheasant, the pheasant hatch and stuff like that. But the problem comes when they be because there's such a lack of pasture, you know, grass for cows, that they start to open up uh wildlife preserves or CRP land or other basically land that is reserved for habitat for pheasants and they open it up to cattle grazing because there's such a dearth of uh of grass for the cattle and that's a
1: huge bummer if that happens so Anyway, it's 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 just yet another bad near bad year. We thought 2020 was going to be the worst of it, but 2021 yeah. is uh, showing us that nah, we got something else planned. Uh, yeah, but.
0: 2021 is. Eh, not the greatest, but I mean if people if people uh you know check out the Reverend Hunter on Instagram, you'll see I've been doing some dog training and uh you know had some people up at the lake and doing some cooking and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. Tonight I'm having um my my core posse of pheasant hunting buddies over for dinner. We're going to have some pheasant in the new kitchen and we're going to plan out all of our hunting trips for this fall. So that's always a super exciting time and starting to look toward, you know, the hunting season.
1: That's really cool. How is that new kitchen, by the way? Are you having fun Mm -hmm. cooking in it?
0: Yeah, come on over. I'll cook you up some pheasant.
1: It looks like the perfect, like, social type of kitchen, too, where you can cook and all at once. I mean,
0: I could actually, I was thinking, like, I could actually film, like, a cooking TV show in here. It's got kind of that vibe, too, so... Who knows? And there you uh, go. Uh, we'll the, get, sky's we'll get, the
1: limit. We'll get some tripods set up, and uh, I'll run yeah, that tomorrow.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of hunting and looking forward to the fall, my guest today is such 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 a dear friend. We met in about 1999. Uh, Jason Mitchell and I worked together in the church world, and then it was only later that we kind of discovered uh, a. A shared love of hunting he's particularly a duck uh, a a waterfowl hunter but particularly a duck hunter and as you'll hear in the interview I mean one of the things that's so intriguing about about my buddy Mitch is that his father owns uh, one of the last and most storied handmade duck call companies in the world Uh, and you know Jason's made just you know, myriad duck calls himself, uh, in fact, gave me one. And um, you'll get to hear a little tutorial by him on how to blow a duck call. But also, friends, stay tuned till the very end of the episode. Having heard Jason blow his duck call, you can listen to me blow my Iverson duck call at the end of the episode and, you know, let us know... Uh, Send me some social media and tell me how you think my duck call stands up to Mitch's. As always, friends, uh, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, review, and share the Reverend Hunter podcast with everyone you know who you think might be interested in deeper conversations about finding meaning in the outdoors. We love your support. We appreciate it. And now here's my conversation with my friend... Uh my my duck hunting buddy and the heir apparent to the Iverson duck call empire, Jason Mitchell. Jason Mitchell, man, thanks for coming on this show. Do you know why do you think I had you on here? I don't know. Because uh, there's a very famous a lot of hunting, there's a very famous hunting celebrity named Jason Mitchell.
2: Oh, oh, I see. So you're trying you're trying to get clickbait with my name,
0: <laughs> Jason Mitchell Outdoors? Isn't that that guy's? Yes, isn't there some famous hunting guy like that? It, it's funny a- because when 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 you and I were trying to scheme up a big uh, duck hunting Odyssey, you know, fifteen hundred mile trip. I posted something about it on Instagram or something, and somebody DM me like, "You're going hunting. You're like, you're going on a (laughs) three week duck hunting trip with
2: Jason Mitchell." (laughs) It's like (laughs) the other thing that happens to me on social media for whatever reason. It's become a popular name. So the guy, the actor that played Easy E in Straight Outta Compton, was a guy named Jason Mitchell. And so before that movie came out, he hit me up on Instagram or on. Twitter and tried, wanted to buy my handle because I actually have at Jason Mitchell. And, um, anyways, but he kept offering like additional amounts of money, which started at 20 and might have got to 35. And I was like, sorry,
0: dude. Come on. Wait, like $35?
2: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It wasn't even legitimate. And even, and even in Instagram, like last, in the last month, I received, um, I'm a DM from some kid in high school who wants to go very far playing football and would like my Jason Mitchell handle. So,
0: oh my gosh, so funny. <laughs> Hang on to those. They might be worth a lot. Of money.
2: <laughs> I was, yeah, that's my, that's my, the closest I am to famous, except for
0: knowing you, of course, but Hey man, um, we have been on a couple hunts together and neither of them was very successful. Yeah. The first one, you and I went, uh, we hunted ducks in some flooded timber in East Texas.
2: Yes, that was Lake Fork.
0: Okay, and I don't think you
2: even brought a gun. Well, because I only think one of us had a license, i.e. me. (laughs) 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 Because you were down here, you were down at some youth speaking event in downtown Dallas, and I can remember pulling in with my Bronco and duck boat into that little and the guys from the hotel at 3:30 in the morning going what in the hell is going on <laughs> and then you rolled down and jumped in and we left
0: and uh i remember you calling extraordinarily well i shot not not well at all i don't know the, did, did i even hit a single duck
2: yeah we ended up getting a few birds including really? a we were so proud because we shot a few canvasbacks that day and i found out like 48 hours later that Canvas back season didn't start for another week, so <laughs> oh I hope the game worn. What's the you know statute of limitations on that? I'm I mean, this sure
0: was that. a long time ago, and then, <laughs> but my the, the 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 aspect I remember most is we stopped in some little town in East Texas, Emory, Texas, Emory. Okay, and I was wearing Crocs camo. Yes, I was wearing my duck camo, and I would taken off the whatever boots you loaned me and i was wearing crocs and you just kind of rolled your eyes like this is not going to go well and we <laughs> we walked into this diner and it was like all cowboys and you and me in camo and me and crocs and i don't well, think it was, i it think was i had co- the, i think i had the only pair of crocs in that zip code at, on it that was the night. one
2: time where i felt i could identify with the guys from
0: easy rider you remember that movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, and then the other time you flew all the way to Minnesota for a duck opener. And I I have quit hunting ducks on our Lake because I've had too many duck openers, just like the one uh, you, when you visited, we did not shoot a single duck. Yeah. However, I will never forget the stealth operation we pulled on that Canada goose.
2: Yeah, I think we were motivated because yeah, we were. I think hungry after not shooting in the morning, and we saw a goose well, that didn't seem to. I, want I to made get off you the water. first of
0: all after not shooting anything <laughs> in the morning. I made you hike through like waist deep. I, I you were. <laughs> Well, I don't know that you made me. I think I was sort of like, "Hey, what
2: if I go around this direction?" And then well, you- that
0: was no, that was later. At first, we walked through a slough, and you were kind of like, "What the hell, bro?" And I thought, "Oh, we're going to sneak up on this creek." And a lot of times, there are teal or woodies in this yeah. creek, and we're going to sneak up on them. And so we went instead of going up over the ridge, we came down low through this slough. It was like we were knee to waist deep in muck. And it was, you know, it's it's opening <laughs> yes. weekend, so it's yes. hot and sweaty yes. and buggy. It's not yes. yet cold. It's not what people think about when they think about duck hunting. And by the time we got there and there were no woodies or teal, it was it was pretty brutal. So then we went part. to another yes. spot, which I now affectionately call Mitchell Pond. And we I, I just have such vivid memories of this. We 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 crested over a ridge and looked down into this pond, and I said well, what the heck? Why is there a goose decoy? <laughs> One solitary goose. There's just a goose decoy just floating out in that on the far side of that pond. It makes no sense. We don't, right. we don't even own goose decoys at that point. I don't think I did own any. And and I was like, maybe somebody was poaching on our land and left that goose decoy out there. And then you said, I think it just moved. <laughs> sure. No. It was just a solo goose. So I went straight down and I remember army crawling on a floating bog with just like water coming in yes like water pouring down the neck of my jacket you know we, we I basically I we were going to stop at nothing to get this goose you went around the far way and you must have done a similar deal
2: yes and I and kept, then, i kept I kept expecting that thing i I assumed I wasn't gonna have to do the whole walk. that's why I volunteered <laughs> because I assumed he'd just get up, but he didn't get up, so I kept walking and he did eventually, which was funny,
0: and you dropped it
2: well, I think I winged it, and then you dropped it. well, I think we, we both, both shot, that shot bird.
0: we both shot, and Albert made a fantastic retrieve
2: that ended up being super long because I think he had to go over. Through water, then like over an island, and then through, and get back in the water or something like that. I remember yeah, it being yeah. super impressive.
0: And that goose was not dead. No, <laughs> <laughs> when he brought that goose back <laughs> to me, <laughs> <laughs> it was not dead. So he had a goose hissing at him on the entire retrieve back to me. Yes, uh, which was so epic. That uh, he was such an epic dog, and I'm so glad that you got to hunt with him.
2: Yeah, he was. That was a great retrieve.
0: Now my goal is that you get to hunt with Crosby sometime. Who is a fantastic hunting dog in his own right. We will make that happen. I just got some great news today. Uh I I got a lot the, the South Dakota waterfowl licenses for non-residents go by lottery and I got I won one. Yeah, I lottery. saw you post
2: that. So literally to hunt ducks in South Dakota if you're not a resident you have to you have to basically go through a lottery process. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, and what I've been told by people is that because so many non-residents come and shoot pheasants, sure, that they it's the way that the South Dakota Fish and Game and and the South Dakota State Legislature kind of threw a bone to resident hunters like, hey, yeah, we're constantly recruiting non-residents to come shoot our pheasants, but you guys get the ducks that that yeah. was that's kind of uh, that's sort of how they negotiated peace. Yeah, so it, in that way they can just limit the number of duck hunters, but um I mean, I the, actually the, the license I applied for is not that hard to get because it's a 3-day license and I can only hunt on private land in one okay. little part of the state. So if you narrow it down and know what you're doing, you've got a pretty good chance of winning. um And on the other hand, an an earlier guest of mine had said, oh man, come, come elk. uh, I mean, antelope hunt with me in, in Wyoming, like everybody gets a doe license in, in Wyoming for antelope. In fact, you can get two a year and I've never been turned down. So he told me where to like apply and this and that. So I did all that and I did not get a license and neither did he. So, the first time in history. <laughs> yeah, and he was he he's Wild. heard that I don't know, they had a bad winter or the antelope sure. numbers are down or blame Steven Renella because so many guys big game hunt now. Um, you know Yeah, uh, there's just a, a, a surge in that for sure. Do you help with time. that?
2: You ha- I know you um you have a friend that you pheasant hub up in the Dakotas. Is that the same connections you have for waterfowl or what do you do for waterfowl? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's got, um, he's got a quarter section and a part of it is flooded.
2: Oh, nice. So
0: he's been, he keeps texting me photos of, you know, ducks sitting on it, but the amount of, I mean, they're in just we're you know, we're all in a drought. You're, you're currently in California and huge drought here too, dodging wildfires, I'm sure. And, um, it's it's really drought conditions in the Dakotas. It's real bad, so it's actually quite good for the pheasants, right? Because uh, they had a really um, they had a really dry, easy spring, winter, and spring in the Dakotas, which is great for pheasants. The one bad thing is if the drought persists, you know, for pheasant chicks, they get most of their protein from bugs, and if the drought, you know, devastates the bug population, in fact a friend of mine who lives out there who's a biologist she swears that the reason that the pheasant numbers are down and and all wildlife numbers are down is because you know the all the roundup ready seeds that are planted so because uh the the crops there's no weeds in the crops there's no place for bugs because there's no bugs. There's no protein source. Right. And that's for huge for, that's huge for waterfowl
2: and, too, because yeah. the water, uh, waterfowl towards the end of the year will, um, thrive on invertebrates to up their protein levels to prepare to fly back North. And that's, that's definitely an issue for them as well.
0: Yeah. So, um, anyways, we've had a couple not great hunts, but we've had many, many good times together. I don't, when, when, when did we first meet? Would it have been like, Oh, Oh three, Oh four, Oh five in there.
2: No, no, we would have. So I moved Even to earlier? Dallas, uh, to work with young leader networks in 1999. So you and I would have met in 99 at some in point. Ninety nine, Yeah, exactly. Oh, July is, of 99. Yeah. We moved. Now I don't okay. know exactly when, and, and you, you were in, you were one of, I don't think I met you immediately, but I know I met you along the way pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Um, you're point. right. I should have known that because your predecessor left in late 99 to start yep. a church in Minnesota in 2000. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, that's when we And before that, what were you doing? You you had started a church in the Northwest or in Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So
2: Cheryl and I um yeah, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, moved to Southern California, go to seminary, met Cheryl. We got married. We moved to Vancouver, Washington, which is essentially a suburb of Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And we planted a church there in 1994, or we got there in 93, I guess, and then left in 99. So we were there six years. What was the name of that church? It's now, um, it's now known as River's Edge Church.
0: Okay. Uh, Oh, it's still going.
2: still going. the guy that I handed it off to, who is a good friend and I got into duck hunting. Uh, he became a better duck hunter than I am. Amazing guy. Um, still pastoring it. And they moved okay. because of a lot of, and in, 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 and I will say this, uh, I think uh, through a lot of the influence of, of what I was exposed to through friendships with guys like you and, um, you know, the young leader network thing, he ended up taking that church out of the suburb and moving it downtown Vancouver and, kind of taking on a different kind of mission. Mm-hmm. Um and so he was with me at in Glorietta, nineteen ninety eight for the that that conference. So we were definitely influenced by all oh, of that before I went to work. Yeah. Know. So okay.
0: what what was it called when you planted it? It had to have like an edgy emergent name.
2: No, 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 I was a dork. I was not edgy <laughs> emergent guy. Like I didn't no, I I didn't know what I was doing. It was called River Heights Church.
0: Okay. Yeah. So it was kind of a
2: little generic suburbanish, but the church that we planted out of was um, New Heights, and so we kind of named it a subset of that, I guess. But, but yeah, I know it was some really good times. You know, some of the best and hardest times of my life, and yeah. got into some really good duck hunting up, up up in that part of the world too. It's amazing.
0: Sea out on the sea, or what? How well, were, where, we were did. where were you?
2: A little bit of everything, but the Columbia river's right there. So it's just, you have a ton of different oh. directions. You can go hunt on the coast, on the Columbia, up, up towards Eastern Washington, on the Columbia. Of course there's, you know, non river hunting as well, which we did. Um, so a little bit of everything.
0: Awesome. Now yeah. let, let's let hear about, you must've grown up hunting. I did. Tell me about so,
2: it. Yeah. So I, like I said, my dad, um and mom grew up here in the in Marin County in a little town that's super exclusive and richy rich now but at the time you know just regular folks live there called Belvedere which is right mm-hmm. on San Pablo Bay um, which is the north end of San Francisco Bay and so my dad grew up sailing and on the water hunting ducks and he just took to hunting and then got into deer hunting pretty early on as a kid too so growing up in our house we went deer hunting we went dove hunting we went quail hunting we went duck hunting, yeah. we. We did all of it, so definitely a part of part of my growing up, and uh, probably the most the the you know the most you know thing that I enjoyed the most was duck hunting. My dad started building a boat, a little skiff, a little twelve foot skiff, when I was the year I was born, hmm. and he finished it when I was like twelve or thirteen.
0: Are you serious? And
2: yes. I, we threw a couple moves and like you know it sat in the garage, and then a buddy of his. Uh, Dave Donzel, who was a, just a legendary hunter on the bay here helped him finish it up one summer and then from the rest of my junior high and high school was going out on the bay with my dad and, in a little you know, wooden boat. ducks little wooden boat and he still got it here in the yard
0: come on with a motor on the back
2: yep I, I don't know if it holds water right now but <laughs> probably needs a little uh, caulking
0: wow i or mean, fiberglass. Uh, what's what's the tell tell me what it's like to hunt on that bay like that i mean is it is it rough water are you tucking the boat into wheat into reeds or what
2: exactly so as a kid and you know obviously did it as an adult too but you know you 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 motor out and of course my dad and dave were hunting buddies and they were super old school about their approach and they you know anything over a four horse motor is going too fast so you (laughs) Plop the boat in at the Black Point Petaluma River entrance, and then you just bore huh. out into the bay, and it can be blown 40 miles an hour, and you're just That's chopping crazy, through man. the water. And, it, may and is, take is you- it is this a flat bottom boat? It's kind of a it's a modified V, so it's okay, you know, a V in front. So you're cutting through now, and, and these guys know what they're doing, they know how to design sure. and build boats, my dad and Dave. And so they're they cut through the water, but you know, this you know, you're 12 years old, you're getting soaked. Just water's coming up over the bow for 45 minutes to an hour until you get to your spot. You know, and so yes, then you you're and you you determine which way are gonna go on the bay based on the wind direction. So if it's okay. coming from the south, you're gonna go to the south shore where you can get a lee you know, or west or south, you can get a lee there, or if it's coming the wind's coming from the north or east, you're gonna head up to the north shore, and get a lee up there. And so you set your decoys up and back into the reeds and time it according to the tide because it comes in and out as you, you know, so you kind of kind of plan your hunts around that as well.
1: And
0: how many, what, 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 what kind of ducks are you hunting for? And, and, and what's your decoy setup?
2: Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, back in the day, you know, and probably less so now there was large quantities of both puddle ducks and divers. So we would kind of have kind of two sets. So one side of the decoy set would be, cans and blue bill and we would set those up and if we were set up down south there tended to be more pro- predominant divers on that side of the bay so we'd probably use more diver setups there but we would also set up on the other side of the rig uh puddle ducks mostly pintail mm-hmm. um and some mallards and you know probably 30 to 40 birds we would put out on trot lines so you have three to six decoys connected to one big weight um and so that was always fun putting them out da, and picking yeah. them up <laughs> in the in a forty mile an hour wind.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I'm guessing that you can't you're you're not in waders in the water. You're doing all this from the boat, putting doing out the decoys all. and pulling them yep. back in.
2: Yep. And it's oh you know, it's it's a little stressful. And you know, you know, my, my dad's, <laughs> you know, from the generation he's from, and so there was always a lot of barking and trying to put it all together and you know, and making it happen. And then you finally get set up and you're like the ducks start flying and you forget about all the wet and the cold and the decoy set up until you have to pick them up again at the (laughs) end of the day i mean that
0: how how big did you say this boat what
2: is it's tiny i look at it now and of course i'm put on a few pounds since i was 12 years old but i i don't know how we did it you know (laughs) like because there were decoys i can remember being kind of crunched up against the decoys in the front and you know, my knees were probably not too far from where his, he was kneeling in the front. And I, I would be facing backwards, you know, to kind of protect myself from the weather. And then he would Mm -hmm. be obviously, you know, be faced forward, but it's tiny. I mean, I, you know, I can take a picture of it and send it to you.
0: (laughs) And did you have a dog in that boat? No,
2: not then. Okay. We didn't hunt with dogs back then. My, I got my first dog when I was, I think, uh, sophomore in high school and I trained him and that was a whole nother dimension of duck hunting that was awesome and by then by the time I started my brother got his license and then I got my license we started you know finding other ways to duck hunt um and also honestly where we grew up we grew up in a town called outside of a town called Nevada which is north of San Francisco by about 25 minutes but we're outside of town in a little community called Black Point which is literally I could walk from my parents house to the marsh in the winter where you know water would stack up on the, in the, in the valley below where ducks would sit. And we could kind of, you uh, know, in, in high school, basically walk down with our shotguns and shoot at birds down in that field. And then if we wanted to, we were really motivated. We could actually walk to the bay, um, hmm. take a little farther, but we did that. Um, we poached private property and got chased around. God bless, uh, <laughs> Mr. Um, what was his name? Hoover, Mr. Hoover's ponds, they still exist. He donated the property to the fishing game. So those, those ponds still exist. You can't shoot there anymore. You'd be arrested. But back in the day, we just had all kinds of fun shooting those ponds.
0: Now, how would you retrieve those ducks with no dog? Okay, so I had a paper route. Remember when paper routes existed? Oh, I, yeah. I used to sub for, for a neighbor kid whenever he went <laughs> out of town.
2: So I would break down my Model 97 12-gauge shotgun and place... One half of the shotgun in my paper bag on the left and the other half in the paper bag on the right. Stack the papers on top, deliver the papers. At the end of my route, I would shove my bike into these blackberry bushes where I would deliver my last paper. I would basically sneak onto this guy's property where a bunch of cans and bluebills would set up on this pond. i would sneak out to this point. Because my dad told a crazy story about swimming out after his ducks. Of course, as a kid, you wanted to do that, too. So we, would, we, we figured out a way where you could sneak out to this point and the, and the cans would kind of swim back behind you. Okay. And then when you fired a shot on the water... They would get up and then fly towards land and go, oh crap, the bay's the other direction, and then come back over you. So you had a shield, <laughs> you had a shot on the water and then you had then you would reload and then you'd kind of blast them as they would head back. You know, some of them were coming back over you at 20, 30 yards. So it was awesome. So you could, <laughs> you know, knock down a couple cans and a bluey and put them in your pickup bags and go home. So <laughs>
0: Does that happen anymore? No, man. I mean, it might happen. It might happen in Saskatchewan or something, rural Saskatchewan, or it doesn't happen anywhere I hunt. Yeah, I yeah, mean, those
2: were a lot of fun days.
0: People have cameras out everywhere now. You know, like you can't, you can't go onto private land or something like that. You, they track you down. Did you? Did you eat those ducks? Was oh, duck up? Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you shot a oh, lot yeah. of ducks with your dad. So w- was it the old school, like your dad would bring them home and mom would clean them and cook them up or what?
2: <laughs> no, no. Um, we um, we cleaned our own birds. So, okay. yeah, if if I went, um, we'd all, you know, sit down in our yard and pick and clean and wash off the birds and then cook them the next chance we got. And sometimes if we had a lot of birds, we'd freeze a few or whatever. But
0: mm-hmm.
2: we we generally ate what we shot.
0: Now, tell me about your journey into duck calls, which obviously includes your dad uh, uh, journeying into duck calls. So, yeah. So, Iverson Duck Calls, there's a
2: gentleman by the name of E.V. Iverson. It's kind of a cool story if you give me just a moment.
0: Yeah, let's hear Um, it.
2: So, he was actually born Reynolds, North Carolina, but actually was raised... In Badger, Minnesota, wh- I mean, I think that's up near the border, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. It's way up yep. north, but in your territory. yeah. Um, went to the Naval Academy. And then he was in 19... 19- so he grew up duck hunting, big passion about it, and messed around with duck halls when he was a kid and stuff. And then ended up at the Naval Academy and served a couple tours in the war. And then ends up in a brownstone in Greenwich Village in 1945, recuperating from minor surgery. And I guess the hospital had like... Um, a wood shop in the basement. And so he started turning duck calls and from there. When you say turning
0: duck calls. Okay. We're going to get back to that. Right. Because that, that seems like kind of a technical term.
2: Yes. So on a lathe, apparently this hospital had like, it was like a, um, what do he got a, a recuperation place and they had like a wood shop and exercise equipment. So it was weird. Like I don't, normally you're just, you know, working medicine balls, but back then they had lathes, I guess <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> As well, in addition to the medicine ball. So, um, so yeah, he started turning duck calls on a lathe by hand and um, he enjoyed it so much. And he, I, you know, he had, he had spent 29 years in the military. was probably trying to anticipate what retirement would look like. Mm-hmm. And so then built a little shop in the basement of his brownstone and started making duck calls by hand in the basement of his brownstone. And, I, you know, his daughter used to like to say that he'd be tuning them down there, quack, quack. And people on the street would go, where are the ducks down there? You know, some kind of thing as they walked by. Funny. Yeah. Totally funny. So anyway, long story short, he and his wife um, ends up taking a couple of those calls down to Abercrombie and Fitch uh, in New York. And they're taken to them and they start, you know, carrying his duck calls in the store. And the reason I tell you all of that um, is because almost 30 years later, 1975 Christmas or 76 for my dad's birthday, somewhere in there, I'm in an Abercrombie and Fitch in San Francisco, California with my mom. And we're going to pick out a duck call for my dad for Christmas. And my mom's there helping me. We buy him a $30 Iverson Rosewood handmade duck call. Mm. Give it to him for Christmas. And by May of that year, he bought the company.
0: <laughs> wow! Wow! So
2: like in between there, because my dad, he's a very creative, talented artist, craftsman. He started going, Hey, maybe I can make a duck call and started dissecting it and playing around and trying to make his own call. And then he picked up the phone and called, Mr. Iverson and they became fast friends and it turns out at that time he was kind of ready to get out of it and retire and that's how my dad stepped in and that's when I was 12 13 years old and so I grew up in a wood shop turning and making duck calls
0: when did um when at Abercrombie and Fitch when did the teenage boy model with the six-pack abs and the jeans Hanging down below his underwear, start playing duck calls.
2: <laughs>
0: Man, because <I laughs> that's know, but, and Fitch. I know, so I don't know yeah, what you're it, talking about a place exactly. Where you can buy duck calls?
2: Used to be a kick-ass store, you know, not anymore. But uh, <laughs> no, I guess maybe the '90s. I don't know because <laughs> okay. '80s. So what 90s? Was your,
0: well, I, I need a little more here. What was your dad doing at the time? That he was in the market to buy a duck call company from a from a guy across the country. So he's, yeah.
2: So he was living a little bit of the Mad Men life. He was a, okay. a trained artist. He went to art school in Southern California after he got out of the military. He married my mom. And um, then he got a job with an agency, Soyster and Orange Shaw, in San Francisco, when they settled back up here. And he was basically doing, you know, they would do creative... Ads, And so he was laying out Campbell soup cans, literally, wow. by hand. Because wow. back then he didn't have, you know, all the computer elements that we have today in software. So, um and so I think he was always a little bit of, you know, do I want to, you know, do the commute to the city, make soup cam labels the rest of my life. And so he saw this as an opportunity
0: and a way out. And he did it. And your mom was like, Oh, great, you're quitting your job.
2: <laughs> well, there was a little to- bit of a transition. So he um he basically did both for a long period of time for maybe a year okay. and a half, two years, and then kind of got to the point where I think we were old enough to carry a little bit of load in the business and you know, the he was able to sort of build up a enough of a book of business that kinda of allowed it to buy him off of the other job that he had. So but then from, I guess, you know, probably late 70s until he retired and he still does them some, he's been just cranking away at duck calls.
0: He still does them.
2: Well, I mean, in the last year it's gotten a little hard, you know, with the pandemic and then, you know, my mom's got reasonably advanced Alzheimer's, so he takes <laughs> care of her, so he doesn't get down to the shop as much anymore, which is mm-hmm. something that he and I are kind of talking about what that means. But um, yeah, I mean, I, t- I get emails on a regular basis because I've sort of taken over, you know, built a website for them and kind of maintained the communication side of the business. And there's Mm a hundred people who want duck calls right now. And I'm trying to figure out how to deal with that. But the, um, just emails who talk in such glowing terms about my dad and what the calls mean to them Mm -hmm. and the fact that they got it from their father or grandfather and they want to hand them down or get another one for their son or daughter. Like, Mm -hmm. Email after email after email, because it's not just another acrylic mass turn call. You know, you can buy, have 10 of those in your bag, but the ones that at least the story that we hear is just the meaning that, you know, some, whatever, whatever it is about a, a call that is handmade and has a, a lot of intention put towards it means a lot to people. Um, and so it's kind of cool. It's part of my dad's legacy that I'm really super proud of and want to make sure that it continues in some way.
0: Yeah. I want to hear more about this because it seems to me that duck calls, um, well, like anything you can get duck calls made in China. I mean, and and it's funny that the calls you can get now for basically almost any species you hunt, you can find a call for it on Amazon or on any, you know, you go into a, a big um you know dick sporting goods or whatever and there's there's just so many to choose from um y- you know I I can't imagine this time of year how many duck calls there are at Cabela's but dozens and dozens and then goose calls and different duck calls for different species of ducks and stuff like that but duck calls relative to all those other calls have a pretty long and storied tradition like there 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 must be guys who collect old duck calls for sure for sure
2: and i mean and iversons are part of that those collections you know he came um evie kind of came into the era after that sort of first wave of duck calls it sort of had some sort of patent attached to him at the first part of the 19th century okay and then um which is crazy to think about but um he was sort of that second wave and so he's collectible, but maybe not as much as some of those original guys, but he definitely was influenced by some of those early call makers. And I think one of the things that I'm super proud of is I think Edie Iverson, I mean, he ha- he made a variety of different Mallard calls, but for the most part, when my dad assumed the business from him, he basically had one kind of Mallard call and it had one kind of read in it. And He made it in several different woods and then he toyed around selling other kinds of calls through the years, you know, a whistle and goose calls and things like that. But, um, I think my dad sort of took and improved upon some of the designs and modernized, you know, the Iverson call. So it was a little bit more, um, and so he brought a a bunch of innovation to it and honestly, I think improved upon The call and some guys will say, "Oh, that old style call is the only kind I want," and you know people love them, but they're not easy to blow. You know, (laughs) they're not easy to control. You know, they're super raspy and awesome. But
0: tell me more about that. I I guess I'm, you know, my my understanding of duck call duck calls is so rudimentary. I know there's a difference between a single read call and a double read call, and I know just from experience that some calls are easier to blow through than others you you've actually gifted me two iverson duck calls one of which has rejoined the earth (laughs) in a slew hence the second (laughs) (laughs) hence the second which came with a note basically saying don't you dare lose this one
2: (laughs) yeah no and then you texted Um, me a thanks to an old phone number some lady in Texas got a thanks for the duck call. And I'm like, Hey dude, you get the duck call. <laughs> uh,
0: what's sell me on why an, a handmade Iverson call is better than a plastic, you know, camo call that I pick up at Cabela's for 1995.
2: Well, I'm going to say, I'm going to say this, and maybe this is part of the reason for your podcast that, unquantifiable essence of something that is made by hand and with great intention and thought versus something that is, you just throw a reed into in a cork. because I will say to you, I can talk a mallard out of its feathers with a rich in tone plastic, you know, acrylic call. um, And I can talk a mallard out of its feathers with a nicely tuned Iverson duck call. There's a lot of good sounding calls out there. So it's not really about the sound per se, but I will say this, there is a tonal quality about the reed hitting wood that is unique and less shrill than a reed hitting acrylic. And you can hear it. But guys became enamored in the late 80s and early 90s about calls ringing and being really loud. And it was really influenced Hmm. by a lot of people getting into competitive calling. And so I think a lot of Mallard calls like Iverson's that were Really meant to sound more like ducks resting on a pond, you know, mm-hmm. you know, kind of guttural and, you know, <laughs> you know, you know that those kinds of sounds. Now, you know, guys want to go <laughs> twenty-five note hail calls and all that kind of nonsense. <laughs> right. And yeah. um, so, yes, because if they can um, turn
0: those ducks, if those ducks are three miles away and you know a thousand feet in the air, and you can turn those ducks, you got a story to tell.
2: Yeah, But yeah. the fact and of the I matter think,
0: is that almost never happens. I mean, I've never done it.
2: I will say this. There's there's some logic to, you know, and I think that's those are some of the things that my dad tried to change about the Iverson. Some of the modifications to the new style call and certainly the champion call that he made that actually ended up winning the World Duck Calling Contest in 1987. It's actually, to my knowledge, the last wood duck call to win the World Duck Calling Championship. In Stuttgart, really? Arkansas. Yes. But David Jane was the guy blowing it. I was back there competing in it, along with a couple other guys as well using Iversons. We had, I think, four or five guys using Iversons in 1987 that year. But um, but again, um, if you, you, you wouldn't do it, but I suppose if you could find that recording of David Jane calling on an Iverson, like – He's so ducky and so good. And I mimicked him because he was like 10 years my senior. And I was like, I wanted to sound like him, you know, so ducky. Um, You wouldn't hear that sound at a contest anymore. It's like it's all that shrill sort of acrylic sound. So I think, I think that kind of influenced it a lot. Um I, I guess I'm really not selling you other than to say that.
0: No, um, you sold me for sure. Yeah, I
2: think. I think there's there's something about that reed hitting a hardwood like teak or rosewood or african blackwood that um has a different resonance when it comes you know out out of that barrel than it does when you're hitting something that's non you know original to the earth i guess
0: now i'm i'm hopeful that you are holding one of those iverson duck calls
2: yes i ha- i actually have two close to me and it's funny like the, you know what's the cobbler's shoes statement (laughs) like trying to find an actually functioning duck call around my dad's house he's got a a lot of awesome like but i did find one it's a prototype that he actually have a call it's an antique prototype that he made like for the orvis company many years ago i do yeah so
0: let's um take us through some duck calls and I Brandon is you know might have to a, uh, adjust some dials and knobs to make this sound just yeah, right I'll try but. to
2: aim it away from
0: the the thing a little bit, but um okay. I can always
2: go through these again if it doesn't get recorded well but basically um, there's the first thing that I like to teach people how to make a duck call is a single quack because as soon as you can make a single quack and maybe some busy duck sounds like the chuckle, you can literally call ducks you don't you don't have to make a lot of noise on a call so single quack. And essentially, that's a hen mallard sitting contently on the water, quacking, making noise, communicating.
1: Um, A lot of times,
2: if you're at a park or out in the wild and seeing birds, live birds um, sitting on the water, there's a lot of other busy duck sounds. Um, Feed chuckles um, would sound something like this. And that's just a kind of a, a why can't I do sound. that?
0: I, I, it's, why, why, why haven't I not been able to master the feeding chuckle? Is it, is it a, I, I was taught it was a ticka, 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 but I can't even do it that fast as fast yeah, as, yeah. Some do people,
2: it. I don't know if it's the mechanics of some of the tongue movement that, you know, I don't know. I can't do
0: it. There should be something on twenty three and me like maybe it's a recessive trait that you can't say tickatua tickatua like how fast can you say ticka
2: now there is a guy that I used to compete with who now has his own call company Wayne Betts, and he used to do a feed chatter. I don't it was he sounded like a machine gun and he wasn't doing like that he was a little going like his it sounded like impressive and I could never do that, but I I wouldn't say that I have the best feet cheddar, but I've got it, an- it. I don't know. Maybe you need Tommy John surgery. Um, <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> on my um, tongue, I'll get on that. Oh my gosh! Um, okay, so what are some of? Okay, so you got your single quack. Is it only the female? It's it's only the hen who's making these calls. When you, yeah, when the you hear that, a quack the is it ever Drake? Yeah.
2: So the the the. The drake mallard does have a quack, but it's very different than a, a hen mallard. It's almost like a, it's like a, it's a really guttural in a different way. And you'll hear them a lot of times. If you see a single mallard and you give that guy a little quack or a little, little hail call um, and he'll come over uh, a lot of times I'll hear him and you do the single quack at him when he's getting close He'll quack back at you, but it's very different. So what we're mimicking most of the time when we're calling ducks is the hen mallard. She's doing all okay. the talking for the most
1: part. Yeah.
0: And, 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 I, uh, you, you, you want to shoot the Drake, you want to shoot the male. I mean, that's right. the uh, more of the trophy than, uh, the, and, and they're bigger and stuff like that. I mean, I know guys who will not even shoot hens. They'll only shoot the green heads. Um, right. Right. And so those, the, the male docks, the drakes, they come into that female call.
2: Yes, for sure. And the other thing that you'll hear, and again, if you're out in the wild, listen to some birds out in the wild, you'll hear the mallard kind of go um, do sort of a, you know, and, and I guess duckologists or, you know, duck callologists sort of have divided the this call into a hail call and a comeback call. But if they're sitting on a pond, you'll notice that birds, they'll do the quacks, they'll do the feed chuckle, and then they'll do like a yeah. five to seven yeah. note sort of, but that's sort of like, Hey, I'm down here. So the hail call, if you will, which has become the 25 note screaming top of yes. the ringing thing. But really, if you listen to them, they're doing seven notes most of the time. Um, and then like if the birds are flying around, they do get more excited. So if the call, the birds call from the air, you know, and so from a duck hunting perspective, what you're doing is initially doing hail call, Hey, we're over here. And as they come closer, you're moving into quieter quacks and chuckles. And then as they go around, because a lot of times birds won't come into shooting range the first time around that you've got to spin them around two or three times as they kind of spin out away from you you want to get you get more excited essentially so the comeback call is just basically a hail call just a little bit more excited um, so a hail call or a comeback call may sound maybe a little more excited a little bit more demanding that kind of thing so mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then as they hopefully react to that and come back to you called you, you settle back into some of the other so, I mean, basically the four calls are the single quack, the the feed chuckle, the hail call, the comeback call. And, you know, in competitive calling, they you, you've you got to do a, an adequate version of all of those and put it together in a musical tone to, to win the thing. And in, in, in a calling situation, you're, you're basically reacting to how the birds react to you. You know, you may sit there in the blind and, you know, just do low, low quacks and chuckles to get their attention because they're moving in pretty close. And other days when they're pretty far off, you're needing to make a little bit more noise with a hail call and and be -hmm. more pleading to make sure that they swing around another time to get a shot with a comeback call. Mm -hmm, So,
0: mm -hmm. but how far did you go in the, in the competitive calling world?
2: So yeah, yeah. I, I was able to compete in the world duck calling championships twice, once in 1987, um, the year David Jane won. And then I went back a couple years later. I want to say ninety, ninety-one, eighty-nine, somewhere in there. So I competed mm-hmm. two different times. I don't believe I got out of the first. I think I might have got out of the first round once. Um, and it's interesting because to you have to qualify to blow in the in the World Duck Hunting Contest. So you have to you have to either win a state or a regional contest. Um, okay. So in my case, I won regional contest to be qualified to blow in stuttgart and when you by the time you get to stuttgart it's just like it's like the olympics you know you're yeah it's the best uh, callers and differentiating the sounds is pretty challenging but no, i, <laughs> I, can't,
0: I can't imagine judging that at yeah, that point
2: and some of its personal preference and i think one of the reasons to be honest with you that david jane won that year um was and, and potentially caused controversy by winning i don't know this for sure but we always like to talk about it since no other would as one since okay but is i think his his duckiness was so compelling i think that it stood out and so he got high marks he kept getting high marks and so um it's kind of cool
0: that's very cool the uh, you've made a lot of duck calls in your life i would guess that making a duck call is a a somewhat contemplative affair making a handmade duck call
2: yeah for sure i think you know some of it's you know when you're on the drill press putting holes in blocks of wood it can be you know mundane like anything else um but i don't think i ever the the turning of the wood process is probably the funnest part because you're taking a a block of wood that you're not sure what it's going to totally look like until you round it out and sand it and put your shellac on it. And, and you still don't know what it's going to look like until you stop the lathe and mm-hmm. you can kind of get an idea. But when you stop the lathe, all of a sudden all the grain pops out, maybe some colors that you didn't anticipate and you pull it off there and you're like, Oh, that's awesome. And you set it aside and you do that again. So that process of like taking a piece of wood that sometimes you can tell, or you're not sure, Oh, this one's going to be pretty cool because of the grain or, you know, the feel of it. Um, And then sometimes just being pleasantly surprised about how beautiful it is when it comes off the lathe. That process is awesome. Um, I think of late, because, you know, I don't have the shop with me. I mean, I've off and on made duck calls virtually my whole life, you know.
1: Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. Um, But one of the things that I've sort of taken upon myself since my dad slowed down a little bit is is restoring and tuning up old calls. That's the other thing that goes into it. I mean, you don't send your rich and tone in that I'm aware of to be tuned. You know, like you just get another read and throw it in there. Yeah. With the wood, you know, there's some things that can happen. So, um, that might just need some modification. So it's kind of fun receiving a call back, talking to the guy, hearing the story attached to it, and then getting it back up to speed for that individual, whether that involves lathe work or just putting a new read in, cleaning it up, and oiling it, um, which honestly is not rocket science. It's not that hard to do, but, um, it's just enjoyable to to restore take something that's kind of doesn't sound great and needs a little help and restoring it and getting it to the point where, you know, it's going to be have another 30 years of life if that person chooses to to blow on it that long. So,
0: so somebody will send send you and your dad their duck call and say, you know, a, a 20-year-old duck call made by yep. Iverson and yep. say, hey, it just doesn't sound right or the reed is stuck or... Can you, can you, and, and then you pull it out of the box, you look at it, you blow it, you, you decide what it needs. Exactly. I mean,
2: I, and most of the time like, it depends, like some guys do, you know, do this pretty regularly every couple of years, they may send it in. Some people just buy reeds and do it themselves. Some guys don't do it for 20 or 30 years. And so by the time you get it, there's just junk in there. The reeds bent or he left it in a hot car and the reed kind of lost its curve Um, the cork is loose, you know, there's just the, the, the reed platform is dirty. And so it's just a matter of like, okay, clean this up, put a good oil on it, get another cork, get another reed, pop it in there. And it's Mm. pretty much back to where it needs So sometimes it might need a light. <clears throat> you know, file on the read platform to get some of that crap off. But just think about it. I mean, you're taking that in and out of call bags, dirty blinds, oh, yeah. you're eating a sandwich, then blowing your dog call. You know what I mean? <laughs> the crap that goes through there, you know? And yeah. you know, So it's just, there's just stuff that builds up and, um, but that's, I think that's super satisfying because usually people uh, are just super happy to get it back sounding the way that they want it or need it to sound.
0: Yeah. So do you think this is more of a, a a bigger meta question but do you think there's room in in the economy uh, of the future for a handmade duck call company? I mean can can somebody make a living doing that and uh, you know meeting people's orders and stuff like that or have we just is, is your dad just the last of a a breed of craftsmen?
2: I, it's a good question. I do know that the glimpses of hope that I have, and for me, I don't know that I need it to be my living. So the pressure is not on me to make that my living. My pressure is on me to keep it going and keep my dad's legacy alive, um, not only as he's alive but you know later on, and then mm-hmm. figuring out what to do with it. Because I don't know the answer to that question. What gives me a little hope, as I was starting to say, is just – the meticulous YouTube channels that are out there, knife making,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. you know, boat building. I mean, you know, going into the cabin, going into the woods and building a cabin with your, with a hatchet and nothing else, you know, like there's just, there's, there's a certain appeal, I think to some of that. I mean, and there's, you know, there's woodworkers as well, furniture and duck call guys that are doing things. So I think that there is an intrigue. I don't know if that, means you have to commodify your YouTube channel more than just selling duck calls. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Cause I, I I think that there, I do think that there is regularly like, like the independent indie music genre. There's always people who don't want to be a part of something that, that Taylor Swift, something huge and successful. They want to be a part of something that is maybe a little bit more niched and nuanced and, you know, whether that's a, a leather bag or a, you know, I, I don't know. Part of me feels like there's always a crowd that's going to care about something, but maybe it's just not going to be enough. I, I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I, I do agree with you. I do think that there is a bit of a renaissance in that in people wanting stuff that's well, well constructed and they know who made it. Um and it's going to last a long time, and it's going to be taken care of. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to see companies like Old Navy and Forever Twenty One, and honestly Abercrombie and Fitch struggling because those have become these you know disposable clothing stores. Um, and I do so, I, yeah, I do think I know that for myself, and, and for people I know, a lot of us are spending more money to buy stuff like iverson duck calls and say i don't need you know you see the guys with the lanyards right with 20 duck calls on instagram yeah 20 duck calls and 45 bands on on there uh and showing off about how many duck calls they have which is kind of ridiculous as though you would need that many you know that many duck calls and i i do i do think there's going to be always a space I would hope for, for, you know, people who want one or two really well-made handcrafted pieces like that. I, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful, but it, it does worry me some, you know, that there's like, what's going to happen to those, to those duck calls after your dad's time has passed, yeah. you know? Yeah. And
2: I think, I definitely think I grew uh, I grew up in a very interesting place. Of course, my dad, in our little neighborhood, we had, um, my dad who made duck calls in a garage on his own property. And then we had a guy named Bill Neal who, car- who was 10 years older than my dad who carved decoys and kind of carved them after another guy, fresh air Dick who was here at the turn of the century. Uh, and and he hunted over nothing but the wood de- decoys that he carved now. And so there is a, there is a sense in which, you know, these guys that I had access to, I don't live in that world. You know, I, I do hunt with, calls that I participated in making in some way or made completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't make my own decoys to hunt over. I use plastic decoys. Um, but I do think there's definitely a passing and maybe, you know, maybe it's not Iverson duck calls per se, but I think people will be making calls by hand at some level, but maybe the rainforests and some of that wood will be gone. And so you can't do it. And maybe we shouldn't do it in the volume that we did at one time either. You know what I mean? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, true, but I'm guessing your your you know your duck calls were not the reason for deforestation no, in, no. in South America. I just threw that in there to, and it funny. is you know that I like to remind people that uh, timber is a renewable resource, unlike oh, a lot, of the, unlike a lot of the other things that we that we do. Um, well, I want to ask you about one more thing that is kind of maybe ties together our, our, you know, our initial conversation about you planting that church. And when you and I first met, we met in church circles. Um, yeah, and then of course we found out kind of later, probably that we had this shared love of hunting. I, unlike you did not grow up hunting. So I wasn't really much of a hunter at all when you and I first met in 99 or you know, when I was 30 years old and just starting a family, whatever, I didn't hunt hardly at all. I maybe had just gone on my first duck hunt right around then, but have become more passionate about it as time has gone on. Yeah. But the, but you and I also at, at similar times went through some struggles. Yeah. Um, you know, different in nature. Mine were, maybe more personal yours, more professional or whatever. And have, thank God we've both come out of those and are alive. (laughs) Yeah. And our, and our friendship is stronger because of it. Yeah. But I wonder, um, when you look back to those hard times, um, what, what did hunting or being outdoors mean to you? How did you get through those hard times? Uh, in those years?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, those hard times kind of began when I came and picked you up to take you out to Lake Fork to hunt ducks that day. I Mm -hmm. mean, that was sort of the beginning of it for me, because I think I had just left the young leader network. And so that sort of entered in, ushered in sort of a difficult phase for me professionally, which, you know, you can't really separate your personal life from that either. It was hard. Yeah. Um, cause you know, failures, you know, not something you welcome, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, you don't, Hey, I'm going to fail at something today, but you do. So yes, I would say super important. Um, the whole, the whole aspect of being on the water, slowing down, getting up early, watching the sunrise, you know, putting your decoys out, uh, waiting for birds to come. Hopefully they do shooting a few birds, working your dog, you know, going in, grabbing breakfast. That whole process kind of runs counter to your life most of the time because, you know, you're, I mean, yeah, I mean, you might be competitive about it in some regard because you want to get some birds, but really it's about a discipline and a routine and a pace that it seems outside of what the pursuits of life professionally sometimes hold. Um, because you're striving for something and really you can strive for birds, but you still have to rely upon weather and birds being present and certain conditions that are outside of your control. So there's something beautiful and peaceful about that. I will also say I shortly after not being able to transition professionally for a while, decided to help my dad out and took over a good portion of his duck call operation for a period of time after that as well. And, that was super awesome too because you know you and i lived in the theological the the meta world the conversation the the pastoral that that side of life that is has doesn't have a lot of closure a lot of times and it's it's you know big ideas and hurt people and mm-hmm. um putting drilling a hole in a block of wood and turning it into a pretty piece of wood that's going to become a duck hole. That process of working with your hands, there's something holy and satisfying about that in contrast to how I've spent a lot of my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, um, especially in the work, the kind of work that we did. So, yeah, I think I think there's, there's something about that process um, that definitely has... Uh, spiritual renewal qualities to it um you know how many sunrises do you see outside of outdoor activities
0: well i'm an early riser okay so wrong (laughs) guy to ask but you know i mean i mean you know but man when you jason when you talk about that that pace the process of it it's so different from everything else I do. And, yeah. and I love it so much. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's why it's the thing that I dream about and, you know, fantasize about during the off season. I remember hearing guys talk about that. Oh, when I'm not hunting, all I do is think about hunting. And I thought, well, that's weird. I mean, I like hunting fine, but it's not that important, but now, to me, it is that important, and yeah. I, I understand that. Um, in fact, I can see why. Well, I and, and others, you know, want to like, um, fashion a life around the outdoors and try to do it for a living in some way, you know, figure out how we can fashion a, a whole life out of yeah. being outdoors.
2: I, I love watching what you've done in the last several years Um, and, and in the last 10, I'm really honored to be friends with you in that regard, but also just as an example standpoint, I know a lot of Cheryl and I talk a lot about, especially in the last year, what the hell do we want to do in the next 10 years? Mm-hmm. And um, I think part of what we talk about is getting closer to a life that's to the things that really give us life, you know, being closer to water, you know, potentially yeah. living on a lake, you know, having, having her access to you know, animals and dogs and things like that. And me a little bit more access to fishing and hunting that I like. And Mm -hmm. it's just funny. Um, and I, what I appreciate about where you've directed your life, um, with some intention is just being able to be, make that integrate into that part of your pursuit and your profession, which I haven't totally figured out yet, but I'm hoping to.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, I'm doing it until the, bank account runs dry and then i gotta (laughs) figure out how to actually make a living uh but no i but seriously i just i don't know for me when i crossed the threshold of 50 and you were you know you were there for my 50th birthday gathering yeah
2: it was awesome um
0: which i don't remember much of because of that bottle of whiskey that cavante brought uh
2: 900 proof or whatever it was (laughs) oh my
0: gosh yeah uh pickled my liver right there on my 50th birthday uh man that was just a such a reset for me the 50th birthday that's awesome of of like the stuff i had striven after so hard for so long meant a lot less to me um than being with the people i love doing the stuff i love um which i guess a lot of people say that it's kind of cliche even to say it but for me it really you know that was for me a a a point a pivot point in my life and I mean, worst um, yeah. case
2: scenario for you and what I appreciate is like you had a season of life where you leaned into it personally and even your kids got to benefit vicariously from some of that because you were pursuing those things and you could take your kids on those trips, on your canoe trips, on your, your yeah. hunting trips. And so like the, the very fact that they could get wrapped up into that is, is essentially, you know, why I got wrapped up into it because my dad was wrapped up in it. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah, He pulled me along into some of that. So that's really cool.
0: Well, I. I appreciate the journey that you and I have shared. Um, It's so funny because, I mean, I'm sure there are other people who are listening who have similar experiences, but like you and I became closer the more our professional lives diverged. You you know what I'm
2: saying? 100%.
0: yeah, yeah. When when we went our separate ways professionally, like you were no longer running the network I was a part of, and then at some point I was no longer even a part of that network. You were no longer really involved in church life in in the leadership sense of starting churches or pastoring. Yeah, I wasn't either. And then yeah, our friendship really blossomed over others. To, well, just a shared love, and then of course a shared passion for for the outdoors. So, um. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool and and I do appreciate your friendship a great deal so
1: yeah
2: and vice versa for sure
0: thanks for coming on thanks for having uh, me and let's uh you know duck odyssey is still in my sights man
2: yes <laughs> I know I maybe not in yours no I want to do that um let's figure something out we need to hunt this year <laughs> at least minimally together once okay
0: Okay, I, I mean, look, I—I'm not the—I—I'm not the stumbling block in that.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna go to my grave hearing about this. I know.
0: All right, buddy. Thanks. Thanks yeah. a million. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate Talk it. you soon.
2: See ya. All
0: right, Brandon. So you—you you heard me in—in uh, in the conversation with Jason admit I cannot do the feeding chuckle. <laughs> yes, I did. Ticka ticka, ticka 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 But here's my Iverson duck call. I can do a couple blows. Here we go. I haven't done it, you know. I haven't blown the duck call in pff,
1: eight months. So get little. It's a little. Have an excuse ready for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could see my dog Crosby because <laughs> he is freaking out right now. <laughs> all right so there we go that's my <laughs> iverson duck call not nearly
1: uh as good as jason mitchell's but there it is well hey if it makes me feel any better to an untrained ear such as my own it sounded odd <laughs> it sounded exactly like a duck if if you were a duck you would come right into that and i would blow you away yeah thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right brandon hey man have a great couple weeks and uh we'll be back Uh, with another great guest in two weeks. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast.